Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have taken us out of the pits of sin and despair and made us your sons and daughters. Help us to ever remind, remember that this salvation is for your glory and for the sake of the world. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> A couple of weeks ago, for whatever reason, I found myself frustrated and grumpy and just generally no fun to be around. Julie can tell you that, although she's way nicer than I am and would never actually tell anybody that except for myself. And even there, she's even nicer than she should be. But needless to say, I found myself slipping down into some sort of little pit. It wasn't a big pit like many of us, face, have, us have faced in our lives. It was more like a pothole that I tripped into and got frustrated. But nonetheless, we all know what it's like to fall into a pit, whether it just be one of those little small pothole pits where you're not really focusing on the Lord and, and things are frustrating and hard, or one of those bigger pits where it feels like your whole entire world has been turned upside down and everything seems awful. This morning we pick up as we're going through Genesis in Genesis 41, and to give you guys a little bit of context, we've jumped a little ways past poor Joseph being sold into slavery and then sold to Potiphar. In the, in the chapter that followed in chapter 38, we have Judah and Tamar and that story, if you don't know it, and you're over 21, go ahead and read it. If you're under 21, you might want to wait a few years. It's <laughs> one of those stories. <clears throat> and then we have Joseph and Potiphar's wife, which is actually kind of one of those stories as well. Potiphar's wife happens to think Joseph is quite, quite attractive and, and wants to do things that one should not do with somebody other than their husband. <clears throat> and Joseph wisely says no, but then Potiphar's wife schemes up revenge plot where she says, well, Joseph tried to seduce me. So Joseph, who was once already rescued from a pit, is thrown back into jail or a pit, and there he stays. And then two men come into this pit, into this jail, the cupbearer for the king and the king's chief baker. And they have this dream, and we heard a little bit about the dream in the, in the lesson. They both have dreams, and the cupbearer dreams that basically he'll be restored, and Joseph tells him, that's what your dream means. And so the baker's like, yes, this is exciting. And then he's like, well, sorry, baker buddy, you're, you're going to die tomorrow. And sure enough, these dreams come true. And it's two years later after this event, all these events happen after the baker and the cupbearer, um, the one that has the positive outcome, the cupbearer, and the, the death of the baker, is where we pick up this morning. And like last week, we're covering a ton of text in as quick amount of time as we can, and I promise I'll try and be relatively quick. <clears throat> and so we've also jumped around throughout our lesson, as you may have, may have noticed. But if you want to follow along, it's on page 34 of your pew Bibles. It's, it's Genesis 41. If you don't, just buckle up and carry on. <clears throat> so Joseph is still in this pit, still in this terrible place, despite the fact that he asked the cupbearer, hey, when you, when you are restored, will you please remember me? <clears throat> and then Pharaoh has these two dreams. The first one we read all of, which was the cows and 
there's these big fat cows and then these skinny cows eat them and it's really weird. And when I first became a Christian and I read that, I was like, that's a weird dream. And then the, actually the, 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 the one with the grain is a little less weird, but it's, it's a repeat of the same dream as we heard. And yet when Pharaoh sees these dreams, he wakes up in a fright and he's like, what is going on? Why is this going on? What, is, what does this mean? And so he calls on, on all the smart people in his kingdom, the magicians and the wise men, and he's like, tell me what this dream means. But it says there were none that could interpret this dream. And so often that's the way it is, right? We, we want somebody to tell us what something means in our lives. And instead of turning to God and to Christ, instead of asking Christ for wisdom in this, we just kind of go to whoever we can find. We go to Oprah or Dr. Oz or, or whoever it is on TV. I don't really know or pay attention to that stuff. When we should go to God and say, Lord, help me understand this. And another interesting thing happens. The cupbearer is standing there apparently watching this whole thing play out, and he realizes, oh, yeah. Remember that guy that I was like, oh, yeah, I'll tell the, prophet, the pharaoh about you? And then he promptly forgets. You know, he probably, like many of us, he, he, he avoids this hard conversation. He avoids saying, hey, there's a guy in prison that maybe you want to talk to because he probably shouldn't be there. And so often we, we, we don't want to have those hard conversations, Right. So we kind of just happily forget them, and Scott Perry probably went home and got back into his comfortable little bed and was happy as can be until all of a sudden he realizes, I bet you this man could help Pharaoh, could help him understand what this dream is about. So he tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh takes Joseph out of prison and tells him the dream. We, we skip over this, this large section of, of the dream being repeated, but it's the same, basically the same thing over again. Tells him what happens. And before Joseph responds, he does something interesting. He doesn't go, well, I know about dreams. Let me, let me tell you about your dream. He says, well, I can't help you, but God can help you. And remember this, because it's really important that he says this to Pharaoh. But let's talk about first what the dream means, right? So there's seven and seven. There'll be seven years of abundance, Joseph says, and then seven years of really awful, awful famine. And it's interesting in Scripture, there's some numbers that, you know, if you see them, you should be like, well, why did that number pop up? 40 is one, right? Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Israel wanders around in the wilderness for 40 days. It's a pretty significant number. Seven is another one of those numbers. And usually it means something about completeness. So it seems like what is being said, one, because this dream is repeated twice, this is what Joseph tells us, right? That this is set and it will happen. But I think the other thing that's going on here, because it is seven, is the completeness of the devastation of this, of this famine. It will be completely awful. Now one more caveat before we talk about Joseph is just a really brief Warning about dreams. I use this example in Christian Ed. I'll be a little more vague than I was, or not Christian Ed in, in our Bible study. I'll be a little more vague. But, let, you know, it's like if there's a young man and he has this, this crush on a girl and he goes and he, he sees her that day and, or he gets in a fight with her, some sort of interaction. It can be positive or negative. He goes home and he has a dream about her. It's probably just a dream. It's not some God telling you something about that. Most dreams are just dreams, our brain working out something going on in it. So, so don't overthink 
dreams just because we're talking about dreams today. But now, let's look at Joseph. First of all, remember what he says to Pharaoh. He says, well, I can't tell you what this dream is, is about, but God can. Then as he's telling Pharaoh what this dream is about, he tells Pharaoh something really interesting. In verse 33, he says, Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. You notice what Joseph doesn't say in these these two passages? He isn't like, pick me, I'm really smart. I'm telling you what this is about. You should should favor me over over everyone else. He He doesn't say that. He also isn't like, well, I had a dream once, and I bet you if you pick me, that dream is about to come true, so you should pick me. (laughs) Something happens when he's in this pit, when he's in this pit, especially the second time. He met God there. And just like my my grumpy week, that was more like a pothole than a pit, if if we're being really honest. When we're down in the dumps, so to speak, whether it be a major pit, or we've tripped over ourselves because we're just being grumpy jerks. We meet God in the, in the depth of that thing. We meet God when we're in the most need of him because we are so deep in it. And so God pulls us out of those pits. One of the books we, we really like here is Gentle and Lowly, and there's this great section in it where he talks about how Christ actually goes down into the pit, even if it's muddy and gross and you're surrounded by the ickiness of your sin or the ickiness of somebody else's sin or some horrible combination of the two. And God meets us there. Christ meets us there and takes us out of that pit. And that's what he does for Joseph. Something happened in the pit of that prison in Egypt where his life is changed. And he comes out of it a fundamentally different man than the one who he met last week in chapter 37. And then we get to verse 37. Don't confuse that with chapter 37. And everything that Joseph had said to Pharaoh pleased Pharaoh. And he gives Joseph a royal garment. He brings him into his royal court. Last week, we didn't play Father Ian Ruins, our favorite Bible stories for us, but I'm afraid in order to understand the significance of this giving of the new cloak, we kind of have to play that game. So I'm sorry if I ruin your, your favorite play of Joseph and his technicolor coat. It wasn't a technicolor coat, sorry, or a cloak of many colors, even as our translation that we typically use translates it. It was most likely a royal cloak with long, kind of like these actually, long, long sleeves. And it it signified that he was royal, which is an interesting thing to give your youngest son in this culture, or second youngest by that point. Basically, Jacob promoted Joseph to some position that he had no right to promote Joseph to because Joseph was his favorite. But then something interesting happens. Having lost it all, having been brought into this depth of the pit, God is now bringing Joseph out through the work of Pharaoh and promoting Joseph appropriately, giving Joseph this position, not out of favoritism, but because he has selected him for this role. 
And as we contemplate this, this promotion to the royal court of Pharaoh, we should be reminded of Jesus in two ways. First, Jesus' resurrection out of the pit of death. Death was not victorious over Christ. He did not stay buried in the grave. Nor do you or I if we put our trust in Christ, but we are victorious in Christ over death. And so as we see this little glimpse of Joseph being raised out of the pit, so we remember our resurrection and Christ's resurrection, which makes it possible. But secondly, something even more interesting. Joseph is raised not only out of the pit from death, but he is raised to functionally the right hand of, Potiphar, of the Pharaoh. He becomes Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, basically, you're, you're, there's only going to be me over you. Everyone else will be under you. And Christ, likewise, is raised to the right hand of the Father. And this is an incredible promise that we have, that Christ reigns. And therefore, we have nothing to fear. And so Joseph takes this new role at the age of 30, some 13 years after he's been sold into slavery. And sure enough, what he says happens. And he does what he proposed to Pharaoh. During the seven years of abundance, he collects grain and collects as much as he can so that they can sustain the next seven years after it. But Joseph's life is also filled with abundance. We skipped over most of this, but he gets married in that time, and he has two sons. The first son he names Manasseh, and he says, For God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. And the second he names Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And like Joseph's life foreshadows Christ, Joseph's life also foreshadows our life in Christ. First, God has made him forget all his hardships and given him this gift of his first son. <clears throat> we often want to inject our own version of happiness over our hardships. We often want to numb them through some sort of addiction, whatever that may be. So we don't have to feel those hardships. But that's not what life in Christ is. Joseph endured these 13 years of misery before he was restored. Likewise, we may endure hard times, but Christ heals those. You may not completely forget those hard times. They may not ever just be completely out of our minds. But when we know Christ, we will know the depth of joy. Likewise, he's given Joseph a new family, and he gives us a new family in Christ. Our identity becomes Christ. <clears throat> and finally, God makes Joseph fruitful. It would be easy to make this kind of something health and wealthy and, you know, well, if I'm faithful to God, then he'll bless me financially and it'll be wonderful. But that's not what God does in Christ for us. Today, there are Christians that gather together in fear that they might be punished for worshiping God. Today, there are Christians like us that can have our doors open and not worry too, too much about what will happen. God blesses and makes each of us, all of us, whether it be us here or those overseas who fear 
to gather together fruitful. And so what is that fruit? At least a major part of that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He grows those of you who are in Christ in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the fruitfulness that you and I are promised when we are in Christ. And so he takes us out of those pits. He gives us a new family. He makes us sons and daughters of him. And he makes us fruitful. And as we end, we see that what has come to pass, or what was said would come to pass, comes to pass. And verse 57 suddenly slips us out of that microcosm of Joseph's life and shows us the bigger story of what God is doing here. We end with this little phrase. Moreover, all the earth came to, the Egypt, to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Suddenly, we realize that Joseph's salvation out of the pit wasn't ever about Joseph. Joseph's salvation out of the pit was first and foremost to show God's sovereignty and provision for the world. But secondly, it was to show, <clears throat> it was also to remind us of something bigger. Remember, we've, we've been working our way through Genesis this summer. Remember what happened in those first 12 chapters or 11 chapters. The first two are really wonderful and beautiful, and we see creation burst out, and it's, it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden, the fall happens. And it's a very, very, very fast trajectory to not-so-good things. <clears throat> but God never leaves the world. Part of what he's doing with Joseph is starting to provide salvation for the world. Joseph's salvation shows us that God hasn't left it, but it also reminds us something very personal. It reminds us that your salvation is not for yourself. It is for God's glory and to be a blessing to the world. If you think that this was the most boring sermon ever, that's, that's fine. I've heard worse. But I want you to hear this last thing, what I just said. Your salvation is not for yourself. It is for God's glory and that you may be a blessing to the world. My friends, do not waste your salvation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost.